planning for a few moments, um, I want, would you, if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 3, the, the book of Matthew, chapter 3, the gospel of Matthew, chapter 3, and if you've been, if you've been, if you're one of those persons who have been reading through the Bible, and I encourage you over the last four weeks to begin reading in Matthew, uh, the, the gospel of Matthew, Matthew, chapter 1, and then just go work through the New Testament beginning there. And some of you, so this may be a bit familiar to you, uh, this text, maybe you read it recently, but Matthew chapter 3 records how Jesus was about to be baptized. Baptized means to be immersed in water. By its very, the definition of the word means to be underwater. Uh, and Jesus was about to be baptized. By the way, in five weeks, five weeks from today, we are going to have a baptism service here. Persons who have declared faith in Christ and obedience to Christ in his command just before he departed, before he ascended into heaven, after he died on the cross and after he rose from the dead, he instructed his followers, and that now includes us, to go and make disciples and to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Baptism is not salvation, but it is an indication, it is a declaration of what Jesus has done in our lives. There's a great deal of symbolism uh, with baptism. It's powerful. It, it, it marks that we are declaring that I was in darkness, I am now in light, I was outside of Christ, I am now in Christ, and, and we rejoice in that together. So five weeks from today, if you have not been baptized, and by that I mean as an adult, after you have come, or excuse me, or as a youth, or even a young person, even a, a child, after coming to faith in Jesus Christ, you've professed faith in Christ, you've experienced that internal change, and you've not yet been baptized, we want to help you with that. So you can see me or one of the, the pastors after the service or in the next couple of weeks, but five weeks from today. Well, Jesus was being baptized in Matthew chapter 3. A man named John had been baptizing people as a, again, a visible demonstration. His baptism was a little bit different because Jesus had not yet begun his public ministry. Jesus had not yet died on the cross and rose from the dead. But they were using baptism, which, was a, which uh, had some roots in Jewish history, and they were uh, baptizing people as, as a mark of repentance, turning away from sin and to God. And so this man named John, I mentioned him a few weeks ago on another message. Uh, we sometimes refer to him as John the Baptist. That was not his name, but it was uh, what he did. John the, baptize, uh, John the Baptist was baptizing people as this visible demonstration of repentance to God. And Jesus came up to John, who was a distant relative of his, and Jesus asked John to baptize him. Now at first, the Bible is very clear, and you can read about all of the text here in a moment or later on, but uh, at first, John... Uh, again, John the Baptist was reluctant to baptize Jesus, but John realized there was a greater purpose to what Jesus was asking him to do. So the Bible records that John baptized Jesus. It was a key event in Jesus' life, and it began, it was shortly after this then, 
that Jesus went into the wilderness, was tempted by the enemy for those 40 days, and then Jesus began his public ministry. But this is a very key moment in Jesus' life and ministry. But it's what happened just after Jesus' baptism that I want you to see this morning. Because verse 17 of Matthew chapter 3 says that when Jesus came out of the water, a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. For a moment, I want you, if at all possible, to imagine a little bit of what that may have been like. Again, Jesus has been in obedience, baptized by John. He brings him out of the water, and immediately this voice from heaven, and I don't know exactly what that was like, but it was the voice of God the Father. And again, you see this statement before you, God speaking, saying, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. God himself, it was the voice of God. I don't know what that's like, but I sure would love to hear a replay of that someday. I don't know what it was like, but it must have been truly awesome. But I want you to notice the words. Beyond what it must have sounded like, I want you to see also what it meant. What it meant. God himself said that he was pleased. God himself said that he was pleased. You see, Jesus did not allow himself to be baptized for the acclaim of the people, right? Jesus was not making a point. Jesus didn't say, you know, I want, to, I want people to, to say, all right, you know, he did it, and, and, and look, he's, he's very special. And it, 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 he was not doing this to, to be a public display. He did it to do his Father's will. And his Father, it says, was well pleased. Jesus' Father was well pleased. Did you ever think about God's pleasure? God's pleasure. God's pleasure. What, what is it that, that pleases God? The things that please Him. Because when God declared that, in that wonderful place alongside the Jordan River, when God declared that, He revealed a part of His heart and a part of His personality. Some of you, again, as you've begun to read the Bible, as you've been working your way through the Gospels, you're just beginning to discover God's heart, that, 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 that God has a, a compassion to him, that God has, has, has feelings, that, that God has personality, that, that, that God is not, as you read through the Gospels and as you read through the New Testament, and then as you read through the Old Testament, you find that God is Again and again, you find that God is not some far-off, too-big-to-care being who, who is unmoved by anything we can do or anything that we can say or anything that we can experience. The Bible regularly shows us that God is aware. The Bible again and again shows us that God is involved and that God is attentive I believe that one of the enemies, and when I say the enemy, I mean Satan, one of the greatest 
most effective destructive tools that Satan has ever used is that God is some distant being who really doesn't care what you're going through. The enemy has, has tried to drive that into people's hearts and minds that God, if he exists, does not care about you because he is so great and you are so small. That is a, a lie from the enemy that has, that has destroyed many, many people. But it says here that he is, he, lo- he says, this is my son whom I love. In him I am well pleased. He, he's aware. He's aware. This book shows us that God is aware and he's involved and he's a, a, attentive. In fact, in the book of Proverbs, <coughs> Chapter 15, verse 3, it says this, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. It's brief. Again, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. I want you to get that. He sees everything. God sees everything. He sees the evil, but he also sees the good. When I was a kid, we would learn a, a song. Some of you may know it. I'm not, I'm not going to subject you to me singing it today, but the words went like this. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. For the Father up above is, right, looking down in love. Oh, be careful, little... And then there was the next verse, oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. And then the next verse, mouth, what you say. Hands, what you do. Feet, where you go. There were five verses. Sang it a lot. But there's, there's a problem, not with the song, but there's a problem in how sometimes we take that, that, not only that song, but our understanding of God. See, the song correctly says, for the Father up above is looking down in love. So be careful, little eyes, what you see, ears, what you hear, and so forth. That God sees these things. He's aware of what we say, what we do, where we go. He's aware not only that, but he's also aware of what we think. It's not just the visible things that others can perceive, but it's what we do. God is aware of all of that. We often focus only on the bad things that we do or see, or hear, or what we do, where we go. We often only look at the negative things, that it's the bad that he is looking for. Again, this is one of the lies that the enemy has, has promoted, that God is this, this all-powerful being, and he is all-powerful, but that he is just standing there waiting to come down and crush anyone who gets out of line. That, that God is, is, is hateful and that he's vengeful. We be very clear on something. Our God is extremely just. But our God, he's wa- keeping watch on the evil and the good. He sees it all. He sees the evil and he sees the good. I counted at least 24 different times in the Bible. It says that people quote, found favor or did right in the sight or in the eyes of the Lord. At least 24 times, again, the Bible says that God looked down 
and he saw favor or he saw them do right in the eyes of the Lord or in the sight of the Lord. 24 times. I will tell you that is considerably more than the number of times that it says someone did evil or wickedness in the sight of God. He sees that as well. He sees the negative. But I think it's worth noting there <coughs> are times in Scripture where it says God looked down and he saw the good, then he saw the evil. Am I saying there's more good than evil in this world? No. I simply want to point out the fact that God sees it all, and he not only sees us when we do bad, but thank God he sees us when we do well. God sees us when we make bad choices. He's aware. He's grieved by it. But this book, God's Word, tells us that He also sees us and He knows when we choose His will. And when we choose His will, He is pleased. Matthew chapter 10. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said that he even rewards his followers if they do something as seemingly small as give someone a drink of water in his name. You think about that. The God who created the universe. On Wednesday nights, we're looking at Genesis, and for several weeks here, we're in the creation part of Genesis and I'm amazed again at how God created everything with his words in six days. But the God who is so great and so powerful, who is so aware, who, who is so far-reaching, also sees when someone in his name does something so small as give water to someone. You know, in my book, <coughs> that's a pretty small thing. How big is that? Not very big, but God sees it. He sees it. He sees and rewards something as small as a little drink of water. I'm going to add this. Because if he notices this, then how much does he notice the other things that we do? That person, that person you spoke to last week, you remember who they were. The, the, the one that the Holy Spirit told you to talk to, but you didn't want to because you didn't have a lot of time. Or the one that you spoke to who, 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 who annoyed you just a little bit. Can I? No, don't raise your hands. That person that you spoke to that, that you didn't have the time to, for, or, or, or maybe you'd spoken with them before to no avail, but he told you to do it and you did it. God saw that. And he was pleased. The meal that you delivered, the time that you took to make that meal, he saw that. And he was pleased. The time you took, the call you made, that note that you wrote, that prayer you prayed, no one else around, no one else around 
scripture that you read, the offense that you forgave, he saw that. He saw it. So often we look and we go, oh, I did this, this, and this last week. God saw that. Oh, so ashamed. I don't minimize that. But he forgives and he restores, but he also sees not just the evil, but the good. What you did this last week, this last month, the things that you've done perhaps years ago, the things that maybe even that you've forgotten, the things that you thought were no big deal, the things that someone comes and reminds you about what you did in their life and you don't even remember it. You don't remember it, but God does. He saw it, he remembers it, and he was pleased. (coughs) I want you to get this in your hearts today. When you do what he calls you to do, he sees it and he is pleased. When you do what he calls you to do, regardless of how big or small it may seem to you, when you do what he calls you to do, he sees that and he is pleased. God's pleasure. Did you ever think about God's pleasure? Did you ever consider what is it that pleases God? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, the Apostle Paul wrote this. He said, so we make it our goal to please Christ whether we are at home in the body or away from it. I like that. That means that while there is life in us, whether I'm in this body or this spirit, the eternal part of me leaves this body and goes to be with him, but as long as there is life in this body, May we make it our goal to please him, that it's all about him, that it's not about me, that it's all about him, that it's not about me, that it's all about him, that my purpose in life, my goal in life is not simply to get as much pleasure as I can for me, but to give him pleasure. See, that's different, isn't it, than what the world around us shouts to us all the time, what the world But the world shouts at us that the one to be pleased is ourselves. Hear me on this. So often we hear this message, and even sometimes in Christian circles, that it's all about my comfort, that it's all about my opinion, that it's all about my way, that it's all about my preferences, that it's all about my life. I have some news for you. That Jesus did not die on the cross and be raised from the dead simply to give us a comfortable life. He did so that, so that we might have right relationship with God. And so that we could give him praise. And so that now instead of living for ourselves, which by the way, if you do that, you will end up with a miserable life. But now our purpose, our reason for being, our goal in life is to please him. See, when you gave your heart to Jesus Christ, something happened and became not so much about you or even anyone else, but all about him. The Bible tells us that God is pleased when we are his. 
<coughs> in the book of Psalm 149, verse 4, it says this, for the Lord takes pleasure in his people. I like that. The Lord takes pleasure. And what is it that pleases God? The Lord takes pleasure in his people. Jesus was pleased. God was pleased when you gave your life to him. I don't know how long it was ago for you. Months, weeks, years, decades, I don't know. But when you gave your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, when you came to the point you realized, I cannot fix myself, I was never meant to fix myself. I can't get through this life on my own. I don't want to get through this life on my own. When you came to that realization and you surrendered your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says, excuse me, the Bible says that the angels in heaven rejoiced. I kind of think that God rejoiced as well. He got excited. He was pleased. Again, we are his. We are his. In Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1, the Lord said, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. We sang that earlier. He's redeemed us. He's taken something of little value, uh, our little value, and has, has redeemed it, has transferred it into something of tremendous value. That's what redeemed means. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. That's intimate. You are mine. I can almost hear as I read that text. You can almost hear the pleasure in God's word as he declares it. You are mine. I want, you to, I want you to hear that again. God is not just saying that in the book of Isaiah. God is saying that to you. If you surrendered your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, you, God says to you, you are mine. You are, that's possessive. That's pretty neat. To hear God say, you're mine. You're with me. You're my possession. I have you. I have my hands wrapped around you. I'll tell you what, folks, boy, there are some weeks, and this was, it was one of those weeks for me like it was for many of you. I, I, I heard about, I didn't experience it personally in my own body, but I'm more aware of, seems like one of those waves, so many hurting people in one regard or another this week. But hallelujah, you are mine, God says. You are mine. Doesn't matter what we're going through. Oh, it matters, but it doesn't matter in regards to his holding on to us. God says, you are mine. This is not a God who says, I don't care about you. I don't know you. I'm too big for you. God says, you are mine. God says, you are. If you gave your heart to Jesus Christ, you, he says, you are mine. I find comfort in that. God is pleased when we obey him, when we do what he calls us to do, when, 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 when we give our lives to him and then he tells us to do something when we do what he calls us to do. He is pleased. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22 reads this way. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. What he's saying here is that that, that you, you think that, that these offerings are, are, are what I find delight in? No, it's your obedience. It's doing what I've called you to do. That is what I delight in, God says. He delights when we do what he calls us to do. Some of you know that we have, we have three children. I love them so deeply. And, and they're, they're like never far from my thoughts and they're always in my heart. 
boy, they used to grieve me sometimes. When I would tell them to do, I won't, I won't say which one, but one of my kids, they were just, boy, you'd, you'd tell them to do something and they just wouldn't do it. And, and I'd have to tell them again. And well, that kind of narrows it down to two of them, isn't it? But, <laughs> but, but I mean, it was just like, yeah, I could do it. just do what I tell you to do. And when he did it, I would go, way to go. When he didn't, I would go, what are you doing? Now, I want to be careful that we don't draw too close because it's a different kind of a relationship. But God, he tells us to do things. He gives us direction. He's given us his word. And he's saying, just, just do what I called you to do. Obedience is better than sacrifice. So often we say, oh, God, I messed up. What do I need to do to make it right? Well, he's the one who makes it right. You come to him, you confess your sin, and he makes it right. Glory to God. But he wants us to walk in obedience. You walk, for the last four weeks I've been encouraging you to read God's word. It's a dangerous thing because now you're gonna, now you're gonna be responsible for it. I mean, you were responsible for it before. You, ignorance is not an excuse. But, but he's given us his word to give us instruction to do what he calls us to do. God is pleased when we live for him. He's pleased when we live for him. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1 says, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. This too is like just doing what he calls us to do. But when we live for him, instead of living for ourselves, you know, a lot of people say, oh, they're just living for the world. Yeah, people don't live for the world. They live for themselves. But when we start living for him and when we surrender our lives to him and then every day is I'm living for him. I'm living for, I'm not living for me. I'm living for him. That turns into an amazing life. And then Philippians chapter 2, a lot of scripture today. Philippians chapter 2, <coughs> excuse me, verses 12 and 13 says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Be careful with this verse. Do not misunderstand it. Some people have grossly misunderstood. So I, I never mention this verse without explaining it. When it says here, work out your own salvation, it does not mean, it does not mean that we take it and we fashion it according to our methodology, or that we fashion it, and I'm going to work out my own salvation. Some people think that that means they work for their salvation. It doesn't mean that at all. Rather, it's that we take what he has given us and we work it into every part of our lives. If you can imagine if you can imagine a, a, a big platter and a bunch of dough and you, you put it down in the middle of that and you're making a pizza crust and you're pushing it all the way out to the furthest edges of the pan, of the parameters of it. That's what this means, that we are to take what he has given us and it is to be worked into every part of our lives. That is not to be limited to just a few little sectors, a few little small parts, but it is to go into every part. That we are to work it out and we are to do so with great honor and great respect, knowing that God has paid for this with a tremendous price. We're to work it into every part of our lives. Why? It's for his good pleasure. It's not for you, it's for him. Now here's the thing. If we live for him and we, 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 we do everything we can to please him, not to earn salvation, because we've all, we already have that if you've given your life to Christ, but as we please him, I'll tell you what, it's gonna turn into an amazing life. 
But if you live your life trying to just please self, it's going to be a miserable life. You could give thousands of examples. One more. God finds pleasure in extending mercy to you. He finds pleasure. Think of this. Now remember that lie that I told you about how the enemy has has perpetrated, has told countless times that, that, that God is just waiting and hovering over to stamp on you, to stomp on you for the smallest indiscretion. That's not true. He, he is waiting and he wants to extend mercy to you because this is what, listen to what Micah chapter 7 verse 18 tells us, God pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. That's his people. We're his people. He does not stay angry forever, but he delights to show mercy. God delights to show mercy. We come to him and you know, we think, oh God, here I am again. <laughs> I've I've failed, I've sinned, I've blown it. God, forgive me, can you? And he's like, oh, I'm glad you came to me. I have more mercy. I have more mercy for you. I have more grace for you. I have forgiveness enough for you. I got this. He delights to show mercy. God finds pleasure and delight in giving mercy to people. If they ask for it. He delights in that. He delights in it. Some of you are going to. Some of you are getting some some of this stuff, and you're going. I never thought about God this way. I always thought of God as as being so so harsh and and so so stoic and and, and so almost mean that 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 I can't. If I get out, the, the no, God, He loves us and He is just and He does not take sin lightly, but He is gracious and He is merciful. And he delights in extending mercy to us. God's pleasure. It's all about pleasing him. That our lives, that our, our beings, that however many years we have, it's all about giving him glory. That it's really only about having an audience of one. It's an old story. true story about a, an amazing violin master in Europe many years ago. He was the finest violinist of his day. It was before the modern means of media, so he was known in certain circles, but in musical circles, he was very well known. And he was giving a tour. And for a number of months, he was traveling around the continent of Europe, hitting all of the major cities. And in place after place, concert after concert, people would pack out the hall. And they would come to hear this man who made music that seemed as if it was straight out of heaven. At the close of every concert, the hall would erupt in thunderous applause. His people gave great acclaim to this most 
accomplished violinist. At one point on the tour, he came to his home city, city where he had grown up, the city where he was trained. And like the other places before it, he played it masterfully in this concert. He did like what no other person almost had ever done on a violin. But this concert was a little bit different. He kept focusing on one part of the concert hall. It was towards the back and off to one side. He kept focusing back there. And uh, at the conclusion of that concert, like in all of the other places, the entire packed house erupted in massive, thunderous applause. People were on their feet. But this violinist simply stood there and unlike the other places, did not acknowledge the applause of the people. He just stood there, bow in one hand, violin in the other, staring back at that spot. Finally, he smiled and then he bowed and he walked off the stage. Afterwards, somebody caught him and they said, an amazing, an amazing concert. But you responded differently. Why? He said, tonight was different because the man who taught me, the man who gave me the skills, the man who trained me, the man who showed me more about what I do than anyone else was here tonight. He says, the person who is responsible for me doing what I do, was here tonight. He said, tonight I had just an audience of one. And he said, it wasn't until that old man, whose hands were so gnarled, could no longer handle a violin, it wasn't until he stood up and began to clap, he says, that I acknowledged the rest of the crowd, because tonight I had an audience of one. I thought of that story that I first heard years ago. I was looking at this. You know, when it comes right down to it, we have just an audience of one. That there's really only one person that we're to please. That there's a lot of people in this world that are going to demand your attention. There's going to be a lot of people in this world who will criticize what you do. There will be a lot of people who, who say you're amazing and in a short time later, people who will say that you're wretched. But when it comes right down to it, we only have an audience of one. That in this life, we are called to please just one. We are to make it our goal in life to please Him. Someday, the Bible says some great and glorious day we're going to go to heaven. Those who are in Christ. And we're going to stand before God the Father. And if we are in Him and we have been faithful to do what He called us to do and faithful with what He has given us, great or small, He will say, well done, good and faithful servant. We have an audience of one.
It's not about your pleasure or mine. It's not about my comfort or yours, my preferences or yours, my will or even yours. It's about his. God, what do you want? It's all about you. May my life, may my life, far beyond these walls, may my life be a life that is demonstrated as one who gives pleasure to him. May my life bring him pleasure. Would you do this in the very closing moments of our time? I want to pray for every person here, for this is a message that relates to all of us. Would you stand with me, please, across this room? <coughs> In this very simple message, pleasing God, I want our lives to be a reflection of it, not just our ears attuned to it. And so I want to pray with you. When we're done praying, as always, these altars are open. There may be some things that you want to come and present to the Lord and say, Lord, it's been all about me, or I've acted as if it's about me. Uh, there's some things that you want to come and confess and say, Lord, you, uh, you said in your word that you are desirous, that you delight in extending mercy. I need it. These altars are open there's someone that you want to take their hand and bring them forward and have them pray with you or you with them these altars are open if there's just some time you want to spend a little bit more time with God these altars are open but I want to pray with you your life not only in the coming seven days but from now until your last day received word from one of our kids yesterday that one of their dear friends from college, 24 years old, young woman, expecting a child, fell, horribly injured, she died, the baby died. Wow, why does that happen? I don't understand family that's grieving, and I don't want to leave you on that, no, but I just feel like I, I just need to say that we, we don't know, do we? We don't know how long this life is. We don't know how, when we'll slip into eternity. I don't know if it's going to be today, tomorrow, 10 years from now, 20 years from now. I don't know if you're going to return this coming week. I don't know. But Lord, in the time that we have, it's a lot or a little. May we be found pleasing you. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you. I thank you that there's more than this life. I thank you that there is the wonderful promise of heaven so that when you return or when our lives are over, we will be in your presence. We have that assurance. We have that promise 
that if we give and surrender our lives to you, then we will be in your presence when that day comes. But until then, until then, may our lives bring delight to you. May we, with what we do and what we say and where we go and what we think, what we profess, what we demonstrate, how we serve, what we give, will bring pleasure to you. This I pray. We make it our goal. You call us to it. To be pleasing to our Lord who redeemed us. So now, Lord, I ask your blessing upon them, your favor upon them, your eyes upon them, seeing, yes, the evil. You extend grace, but the good. Meet them there, Lord. Meet them in those places and use them for your glory. I thank you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Go in the power and in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ.